Welcome. It's good to see you all. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have something that is so precious. I'm telling you, you wouldn't trade it for anything that the world has to offer. And it's something that is so remarkably unique that even sometimes I think as believers, we forget this most fundamental knowledge that we have that changes the entire way in which you evaluate your life. I came across this this week. Someone once wrote this. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He's an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings, which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name is death. And every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday everyone will be his sermon. Well, let's face it. From the moment that we were born, every person is born with a built-in fear of death. The fact is, in the same way as we saw last time, that Solomon said that God has placed the concept of eternity on our hearts, that we also instinctively have built in us a fear of death. That's why you don't have to fall off of a ladder to be afraid of heights. I could be up on a tall building. They got a deck, you know, you know, to cover me. I still don't want to look over the top of that, even though I know it's perfectly safe. You're driving a car and someone in front of you puts on their brakes right away. You put on your brakes right away. And though you avoid the crash, your blood starts pumping, doesn't it? Because again, you instinctively understand. The Bible acknowledges and recognizes that fear that it is legitimate that it is a part of the human condition. In fact, Hebrews chapter two says this, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in the same. That is, through death, he might destroy him who had the power, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, the only way that Jesus Christ could remove the fear of death for you and for me is to come, to live, to die, and then to rise so that we all could sit, uh, face that same fear someday. And that's why in the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we left off last time, we saw that the Apostle Paul began by laying out the answer to the fear of death. The answer to the fear of death, which, of course, is also one and the same in terms of what we place our hope in as Christians, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not just the resurrection of Christ, 
but in answering the objection that there is a resurrection, that we also would be subject to the same. He laid out for us in the first 11 verses, uh, very plainly, I think, the argument for the resurrection, the historical facts that, by the way, again, as I said last week, are not in question. Number one, Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross. Nobody questions that. There are no even secular scholars to this day of any reputation that question that Jesus cross, Christ died on the cross. Okay, there's no question about that. Number two, that he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Again, that's not in question. There are no scholars, even the skeptical scholars, that question whether he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And by the way, the third point, which is inferred in that text last time, is the empty tomb, which most scholars, believe it or not, do not question that point either. Even the non-believing scholars do not question those points. We have more evidence for the death and the burial and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ than that Alexander the Great even lived, okay? It's historical fact. So derived from that fact, Paul assumes, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but not to leave it at that, he goes on to continue by providing witnesses, calling witnesses to the witness stand to testify to the veracity of the resurrection, eyewitnesses. He talked about the apostle Peter, and the 12, and the 500 brethren that Jesus saw at one time, which eliminates the hallucination theory because psychologists don't believe in group hallucinations. And then, of course, he appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who, if anyone had reason not to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and believe that he was God, it would have been the brother of Jesus who grew up with him, and yet he became convinced, despite the fact that he wasn't convinced during Jesus' public ministry. And then finally, Paul himself lists himself as a witness because nobody wanted not to believe in the resurrection more than the apostle Paul did. By the way, on a side note, <clears throat> if the enemies, and there were many, of Jesus wanted to stop the rise of Christianity, all they had to do is one thing. One thing would have stopped the rise in Christianity. All they had to do is produce the body. That's all they had to do. But they didn't because they couldn't, because he had risen. So if you live your life in denial of that reality and rejection of that reality, as Paul continued in the second half of our study last week, he said, if Christ is not risen, he posed that question several times in those verses. Well, then you're either going to, number one, have to find the fountain of youth, you're going to have to look for ways to stay young. You're going to cling to this life with everything you have. You're going to take every pill, every supplement, every diet fad, everything that there is to try to live as long as you possibly can. Or number two, you're going to have to find heaven on earth. If God has given us a vacuum for heaven in our hearts that only he can fill, then you're going to try to fill it with something else if you don't fill it with God. So what do people turn to? Fun drugs, sex, whatever the case may be. Or, number three, you do what the Greeks did, and that is you live in denial of this reality. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was their mantra. And that's how they lived their lives. The problem with rejecting the resurrection, not just of Jesus Christ, but a general resurrection of humanity, is you have no answer for death. 
You have no answer for death. And that's exactly what this church in Corinth was being influenced by, by that Greek culture that was surrounding them. But as we lap, uh, left off last time in verse 20, it says, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now we pick up where we left off, verse 23. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's, or those who belong to Christ, at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, and when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So death will ultimately be destroyed by Jesus Christ. But it's the last enemy, the last hurdle that God's going to do away with is death. But until then, and up until then, if you're here and you have not fully given your heart to Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about an intellectual agreement with God that he's probably right. I'm talking about fully giving your heart and soul to Jesus Christ, then death for you is still an enemy. And so you have to ask the question, what is the deal with death? What happens after we die? How do I know what really is going to happen? And if you are placing your trust in what someone says about death that has not experienced it and come back to tell us about it, some kind of teacher, some kind of philosopher, academia, well, then you are in a real risky situation. Only Jesus Christ can speak to the truth of that. So he says there, verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he, that is the Father, who put all things under him, that is Jesus, is accepted. The Father is the lone exception to what is put under the feet of Jesus. All things will be put under Jesus except the Father. They're equal in substance and nature, but there's a hierarchy. The head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God, God the Father. Okay, so there is a hierarchy, and it's beautiful here how uh, the Father is going to glorify the Son, but the Son's going to turn around and glorify the Father. It says, verse 28, Now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in almost like Paul just kind of went off on a little thing. Just, it's going to be wonderful. When all things are put under the sun, it's going to be a beautiful day. But back to the context here, the discussion, uh, his defense here of the resurrection. He says, verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? <laughs> this verse 29 here, there's like 200 different interpretations for this verse. Good thing for you, I know the real one. <laughs> okay, here is what it does not mean, because sadly, some have used this verse for some crazy support of things that are just not biblical, like proxy baptisms. It's why, by the way, the uh, Mormons keep the most complete records of family genealogies in the world because many Mormons will practice baptism for people that are dead in the hopes 
that they will save those people that have already died. Now the problem with that is we know from the word that we cannot even save ourselves. We cannot even be saved ourselves from baptism. The Bible says that it's faith alone. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we can't even be saved ourselves through baptism. Baptism is just our response and obedience to make a public declaration of what Christ has already done in us. Not to mention what Hebrews 9 says, that it's appointed for man to live once and then to face the judgment. So again, although I don't purport to know everything or know that I'm the only one who knows this, here's what we can do to break down on this verse. Notice a key word in there, verse 29. The word is they. Paul says, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? And why then are they baptized for the dead? He does not say we. I don't believe the Apostle Paul ever practiced or endorsed this baptism for the dead. In fact, I think it's probably something that the Corinthian pagan neighbors were practicing. So Paul's point is, here are your pagan neighbors practicing baptism in the dead in the hopes that it'll do something for those people that have died. His point, why is it that they believe in the resurrection and some of you do not? How is that even possible? In fact, baptism itself, which the Corinthians surely practice, is a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It would be essentially a meaningless ordinance if there's no resurrection. Think about how that would look if you wanted to make a public identification with Jesus Christ, but you didn't believe in the resurrection. We would take you, we would bring you down into the water, and we would hold you in the water until the bubbles stopped coming up from the top. Because we wouldn't pull you back out of the water because we, that's the part that's identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you just believe in the death and burial, then that's how baptism would look. A meaningless ordinance, essentially, okay? And as I said last week, I think the Christian life in general would essentially be very, very meaningless life if there's no resurrection. I mean, it'd have very little point, the Christian life itself. And that's essentially Paul's point here in verses 30 through 32. And notice, as we read these verses, that he transitions back from they to the use of we. He says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And I don't think that this is um, the idea, and we'll see in context why I don't think so, that this is the idea of dying to self here. Um, I think this is the idea here of that he literally is saying, look, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, why is it that I put myself on the line? Why is it that I risk my life? I put my life in harm's way every day of my life if the resurrection has not happened. He says, if, verse 2, in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now, we have no record of Paul being thrown into the Colosseum or him in an arena battling beasts, so to speak. So he could be talking about just fights that he had with angry men in Ephesus. Either way, his point is, uh, what advantage is it to me, verse 32 still? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, what is the point in making a stand for Jesus Christ if I'm never going to see him someday? What's the point in enduring persecution 
uh, if I'm not going to be resurrected from the dead. May as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. May as well join in with the hedonistic crowd. I mean, if we're not living now for the life that is to come, then why not let the sensual rule our lives? Paul's saying that is a logical outworking of a rejection of the resurrection to live that way. In fact, in ancient Egypt, when they would have a party, we're told that they would bring out a carved image of a coffin with a man in it and put it in the center part of the party to remind people that life was short, so you might as well live it up. Grab for the gusto. Get all that life has to offer. Party up, that kind of thing. Now, ironically, for the believer, the idea is just the opposite. We agree with them that life is short. Bible says life is but a vapor. And because of that, though, that's why we ought to be about the Lord's business. That's why they ought to see in us as Christians something that they can't see, won't see in anyone else. The smartest, most learned people in the world will not see a confidence that we have in eternity, in life that goes beyond the grave, that the most educated people in this world would ever have. So he says, do not be deceived, verse 33, evil company corrupts good habits. In other words, stay away from these false teachers that had crept into Corinth, had found places of influence and authority, and tried to get the people to believe that there was no resurrection. He says, and verse 34, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Because by the way, that's exactly what a a rejection of the resurrection uh, will work itself out in, in your life, sin. Because if I'm not going to be held accountable, then what does it make any difference how I obey or not obey God if I don't have to stand before him someday? Again, it's just a logical outworking of that false belief. So Paul says, don't listen to what they're saying. He said, end of verse 34, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Shame on you for listening to this nonsense. Shame on you for allowing these kind of teachers to infiltrate the church and allowing what they say to have an impact on your life and to produce in your life a lax attitude towards the things of God because you no longer believe in the resurrection. That's exactly what would happen. It's interesting because for you ladies that were here on Wednesday night, I was told there's a new study uh, from Priscilla Shire. I'm hearing great things about it. And so if you haven't made it out, come out this Wednesday. It's outstanding. But I guess she was uh, talking about, you know, that whole scene in Judges. Remember the line It's repeated several times? And everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes. And she was basically making the point that the reason why that was happening is because the people had been removed from the miracles of God and they had failed to share those things with their children and their grandchildren. So they lost that awe and reality of God, which would govern their behavior to an extent. And in the same way, by the way, in the children's ministry, it's very interesting. We've been looking at uh, the Exodus. We've been looking at the Exodus and how God did with that generation, he did manifest himself. He did show himself to that generation. They saw miracles when they were in Egypt and God brought plagues to try to change the Pharaoh's mind. They saw that. And then they saw, they were guided by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. 
They also, when they were cornered by the Egyptian army at the Red Sea, they saw God, you know, part the waters miraculously so that they could pass through on dry land and then collapse the waters upon the Egyptian army so that they would be safe and yet when they got to the promised land they found out there were giants in there even though God said this is what I have for you they stopped trusting in God they didn't want to go into the promised land in fact they said let's go back to Egypt which is a picture of slavery to sin let's go back to Egypt and that's exactly what happens in the life of a Christian by the way when we stop believing in the promises of God when we stop believing in God's highest for us as believers, inevitably it will enslave you. Inevitably it will lead you back to a life of the bondage of sin. And so we just keep on plugging away verse by verse through God's word so that we don't become lax in the things of God, which inevitably leads to carnality or worldliness. Okay, Paul, since you're so convinced that this resurrection is true, then why don't you tell us how this whole thing works? And Paul, almost anticipating this objection, verse 35 says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So two objections there. First of all, how does it even work? How could it work? And what kind of a body would they be raised up in? I mean, after they're dead? How's God going to put together a body that crumbled apart like that? What if someone gets eaten by a shark or falls out of a plane? Come on. It's not rational. It doesn't make any sense. In other words, this was the big thing. That's not intellectual. Right? That's not intellectual. We believe in what we know, what we can understand. The Sadducees, they were sad, you see. They were that group that followed Jesus around Remember, they were that sect that didn't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> there were religious leaders that didn't believe in the resurrection. I don't even know how you're religious if you don't believe in life after death. They were religious leaders that didn't believe in the resurrection. They went to Jesus one time and they said, so we got a little problem for you. See if you can figure this one out. I'm trying to stump God. So there's a woman, she marries a man and they don't have a child together and that man dies. Now, according to Jewish law, then since that man had seven brothers, one of them has to marry that woman. What happens if that man dies before they have a child? And then the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and then the sixth, and then the seventh. So that all of them end up being married to this woman. In the resurrection, who will she be married to? Try answering that one. Again, just to appeal to, this is irrational. It doesn't make sense. It can't be understood. Nobody can understand this. And Jesus said, you don't understand. First of all, that they're not given in marriage in heaven. But he said, the problem is, is that you don't understand the scriptures, nor do you understand the power of God. And that's the problem with believing in only what you can understand, in only what you can conceptualize. If you believe in only what you can see or understand, you will greatly limit what you believe greatly limit because you will only believe you will worship your own mind in essence in actuality something less than your mind because you can only use a small percentage of your mind very limited 
in terms of what it is that you will believe. And so the problem for us today as Christians is that I think we're a little bit intimidated and afraid that because we believe in the resurrection, that the world's gonna think that we're crazy or we're not intellectual enough because we believe in something that we can't fully understand or comprehend. And how are we gonna go toe to toe with the brilliant minds of San Jose State and Santa Clara University and UC Santa Cruz if we believe in something that we cannot fully understand and comprehend? And Paul, of course, was you know, very, very impressed uh, with this line of thinking. He said, verse 36, foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So he says, take the example of nature. You all know, you take a seed, you plant it in the ground, it dies, and from that death comes not just life, but something very different than before. You ever seen a, a tulip bulb? It's just ugly. It's just ugly. You know what I mean, right? It's just ugly. You plant that thing in the ground and up comes a tulip. And Paul said, look, which of you intellectually understand how that whole thing works? Yet you go along with it. You still plant seeds. You still farm. You're not there grieving at the loss of your dead seed when it dies because you get the process, but you don't fully comprehend how it works. So how does he raise from the dead? How are people raised from the dead? Very, very simple. God does it. <laughs> it's not that hard. As the old saying goes, if you believe in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it's all downhill from there. Everything else is easy to believe. And if you don't believe in Genesis 1-1, I really don't know what to tell you. Because the fact of the matter is, Genesis 1-1, you just have to look around to believe in that. Even if you don't think it's from God, here's the reality. You believe in something that you cannot explain, right? If you don't believe in God, that God created the heavens and the earth, you still believe in something that you have no idea how or why it's there. So you cannot say that you only believe in things that you understand or can explain or conceptualize. That's a fallacious way of thinking. How does anyone here in this room fully understand how God can breathe the breath of life into a baby? How something so small as an embryo grows up in a mom's womb and becomes you and me. Who can fully, truly understand the miracle of life? We may understand some of the medicine, some of the science behind it, but nobody really knows how they're given a mind and how they're given a soul and how they have that breath of life. As someone texted me a picture last week, they have a basket at home, some folks in our church, and the basket has caterpillars in it, and they watch the process by which the caterpillars become butterflies. So not only is God able to uh, resurrect, but he's also able to change us in a dramatically different way. And Paul's point is, what's so strange about that when you consider the variety of God's creation in nature? He says, verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. 
There's also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, speaking of the planets and the stars, that kind of thing. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So what he's basically saying there is, God has made such a variety of bodies in this universe. Everything you see from the smallest and simplest thing that we can see under a microscope, which by the way, even the microorganism under a microscope is complex, very complex. We're finding that out more and more as we progress in science. But in comparison to when we look at, through a telescope at a star, it's pretty simple. But from the microorganism to a star, God created all of that. His point is, there's a God that we worship, that we follow, that has infinite creative capacity. So why do you think it's so strange? Why would it be so hard for God to resurrect from the dead? And not just that, to resurrect and give us a far superior body that is suitable for a different kind of environment. That is the environment of heaven. And that's his point here as we continue. He says, verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. So he's speaking of the superiority here of the new body. How many just had a birthday recently? Anybody? Yeah, you don't even want to admit it anymore, do you? Yeah. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right? Down throughout the years. We don't want to count them anymore. Why? Because our bodies are corruptible. The word for corrupt there means they decay. The nature of the body that you'll be given, the heavenly body in heaven, will not decay at all. He says it, it is sown in dishonor, despite the skill of the mortician. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. So fitting right now in our church body to talk about this. So many among us in the hospital right now going through cancer right now. Weakness, illness, and it's always the case in a church this size that that's what's happening. But look what he says. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body because that's suitable for the earth. But it's raised a spiritual body built for heaven. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual, that is the spiritual body, is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. And that makes sense. The first man was of the earth, made of dust, speaking of Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So as I heard someone say this week, our current bod is from the sod, but our future bod will be like God someday. And that's why I believe that every teenager, when they get their first car, ought to be driving around an old beat-up clunker, period. None of them should get like a Lexus or something like that. 
And the reason that I think that, I mean, you remember your first car? Most of you probably did drive an old beat-up clunker. I had a red truck, had dents, paint was wearing off. It was old. Got the job done. Got me around, you know. But then when I bought my first car, which was nothing fancy, but it had air conditioning. And man, I was really excited to have that new car. I was taking care of it more. I appreciated it more. And I think in a sense, in a small way, you know, we could have just been born in heaven. And I wouldn't have had a problem with that. But how much more glorious will it be someday, having lived in this body that's prone to weakness, that's prone to corruption, and all those things that will be raised in glory and power of God someday. How much more appreciative after going through a lifetime of ailments and treatments and weaknesses will it be when God gives us that glorified body. And so he says in verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those made of dust, you and I. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly, but we will be. Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Isn't that great? And that's one of the best insights we have to what our glorified bodies will be like in heaven someday. We were born bearing the image of the first man, Adam, but we will be raised bearing the image of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. 1 John 3 verse 2 says that when we see him, we will be like him. So if you want to do a little Bible study when you get home today and get a sense of what that glorified body is like, read the Gospels after the resurrection and see that Jesus was vastly different after the resurrection. Apparently could come in and out of rooms without having to go through doors. That'll come in handy for us someday. He was walking down the road to Emmaus with his disciples and just vanished. I mean, we're talking Star Trek type stuff here. I don't want to make light of it. I'm just saying he was not limited in his glorified body like we were. But he wasn't merely a spirit being. He wasn't a ghost. Remember the disciples when they saw him? They first thought he was. But we know he wasn't. He ate food. Remember he ate fish on the beach there in John 21? Remember also they could touch him. Thomas wasn't there on resurrection Sunday evening, but he was there the next week. And Jesus said to him, here, come here and take your finger and put your finger in the hole of my hand. Well, if Thomas had done that and Jesus was just a spirit, his finger would have gone right through his hand. But that didn't happen because he was still physical. He was still tangible. But he had a different body suitable for a different environment. And the same thing is going to be true for us. He says, verse 50, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that is die as Christians, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, what that tells you right there, plainly, is that there will be a generation that is alive at the Lord's return. I'm talking about the rapture of the church. And I know different people have different views on the rapture, but it cannot be argued that there will be people alive 
at the Lord's return. Sometimes people say, Joe, the word rapture is not in the Bible. And I'm like, yeah, neither is Trinity. And you believe in the Trinity. The word rapture comes from the Latin word for the Greek translation of which we get our word rapture, the word for caught up there, First Thessalonians chapter 4. And all it basically means is when the Lord Jesus returns, there will be believers that have not died. There will be a generation that will not see death. But whether God calls you home before then or whether we are alive for that day, he says, all will be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet, will all be changed. Why? Because these bodies are built for this realm right here, not for the heavenly realm there. And so God will give us a new body. Why? Because our bodies are corruptible. Heaven is incorruptible. He cannot allow corruption to enter into incorruption. So he gives us that new body. He says, for this, verse 53, corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when, and notice it's not if, but just when, this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, that is no longer subject to death, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? And if that doesn't get your blood pumping, I don't know what will. Awesome. As good as it gets. The pinnacle of pinnacles. The echelon right here. The crescendo of crescendos. Look what he's saying. It's almost like a sanctified taunt. Where's your sting, death? Is that the best you got? Is that all you can do? Like a bee that's lost its stinger, all it can do is make you think you're in trouble. It's like the father who was having a picnic with his daughter, and there was a bee buzzing around. His daughter started getting nervous, so he captured the bee in his hands, held onto it for a few seconds, and then let it go. And his daughter said, Daddy, Daddy, what are you doing? The bee's free, it's loose. And then he showed his daughter the stinger that was in his hand. And he told her, well, see, now that bee's got no stinger left anymore. All it can do is make you think it's a threat. In the same way, Jesus, in going before us and tasting death on our behalf, has removed the sting of death. He has swallowed up death in victory. It's the greatest victory in the history of the world. No trophy, no amount of money, fame, or fortune can compare to this victory. And this is what you have. I don't care how smart they are. I don't care how many digits they have after their name. I don't care how many degrees they have. I don't care what they know. If they don't know the answer to death, then you have something more valuable than anything they could ever have. Reminds me of that old fable, and it is a fable. It's not a true story. This is a good one for these purposes of the Baghdad merchant who sent his servant into the marketplace uh, to run an errand for him. And after he was done, he turned the corner and he came face to face with death himself. And frightened, the look on death's face, 
scared him so much, he quickly ran home to his master and asked if he could borrow his fastest horse so he could flee death and travel to Samara before nightfall. Well, the merchant went down to the marketplace, this brave merchant, wanted to confront death himself. He said, hey, what's the big deal? What are you doing going around scaring my servant like that? <laughs> and death said, oh, wait a minute, hold on a second. I didn't intend to scare your servant. It was I who was startled. I was surprised to see your servant in Baghdad because I have an appointment with him tonight in Sumera. This is the way that the world approaches the idea or concept of death with great fear. And you know what? As Christians, we can understand why. Understandably so. Staring at it squarely in the, in the eye, it's for an unbeliever, it's an unnerving thing. But for us as believers, it changes the mindset wholly and completely. In fact, I think it's reasonable to believe and expect that the actual experience of death itself may not be all that scary at all. In fact, it might be glorious. The transition from this life to the new body might be spectacular. Why do I say that? Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned, right? Before he was dead, what did he see? He saw Jesus. He said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now that doesn't sound very threatening to me. I don't know that that's how it is for every believer, but I think there's precedence to believe that that is an instantaneous transition. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So the very thing that scares everybody, man's longtime worst enemy, the enemy of all enemies. In fact, we know from the tombstones in Rome and Greece that they implanted that there, that they were all so very afraid of death and saw death as the ultimate enemy. For everybody else in the world, it is the greatest enemy and it cannot be matched for the believers, just the opposite. It's actually your very best friend, short of the rapture of the church. That is your first class ticket to Jesus Christ. So what has become an enemy for thousands of years, the thing that people dreads the most for the Christian becomes the very best thing that could ever happen to us. The classic preacher and writer, Vance Havener, was asked um, in his 90s, what's the secret to your health? And he said, the, the hope of death is what's kept me going all these years. Now, I'm not gonna take up hang gliding or skydiving or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, what evidence do you have that there's anything scary about the death process at all whatsoever? The only evidence we have is that it could be glorious. That's the only evidence that we have for the believer in Christ. A wonderful, wonderful transition, moving day from this corruption to incorruption, from being with our Lord and Savior. There's no other way. And by the way, if they found the serum for death and they offered it to me, I'd turn it down. I don't care. Even the tiny, tiny percentage of doubt in my mind, and everybody has a little bit of doubt, I will 
easily forego that death serum right now for the rest of my life because I don't want to live on this planet for eternity and not be able to see my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I trade that in for that opportunity even if I, in my worst state of mind, have doubt. We all have that. No way. I want to see Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I don't want to live here for eternity. Turn down that opportunity no matter what. And that's why Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 3 a long time ago, he's classified death as one of the things that belong to us as believers. It's ours. It's something God's given us. He said, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. All things are yours, including death. He said, or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Even death belongs to us. Why? Because it's our way to Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. That's what your hope is. That's what you're living for, is to be with him forevermore, where there's no more sorrow and no more tears and no more pain and no more frailty. You're with Jesus Christ. How can that be a threat? That's not scary at all. And that's something we have that this world doesn't have. And so he says, the sting of death, verse 56, is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have victory because of what he did, but because of that, because we know, and I'm not saying we're not ever afraid. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is what we can be is we can be calm in the midst of storm. We can infuse in others a confidence that they don't have. They can see something in us that is completely foreign to their thought. The idea that we trust that we're going to go on, we're going to live on. That this is not all that there is. In fact, that it only gets better after this. They can see that in us and they can learn from that. That can be infectious. That can change them. That's attractive. As the great British evangelist of the late 1800s, early 1900s, Gypsy Smith once taught, he said there are basically five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. So the average person is not going to read the first four, but they will read you every single day. And so how important then is it for us if we model nothing else? We model an unswerving confidence in the resurrection. Because that's what they want to know. I don't care what they tell you they believe. They want an answer to death. You have it. So verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, don't move off that point. Don't you move off this point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Father, we hang our hat on the resurrection. All we got. Lord, we would be liars if we didn't admit that this 
is the most glorious truth that there is. Oh, nobody wants to not be alive. There are some folks that sometimes despair of life, but everybody wants to be resurrected. And Lord, we can be for you tools in your hands to give people assurance and a confidence or at least stir them up to ask questions to wonder why we're not afraid as this world becomes crazier as this country is turned upside down Lord they can see in us just a demeanor that's frankly out of this world with your help, Lord, with the Holy Spirit inside of us, continuing to remind us that we belong to you and that we're going to live on and the best is yet to come. Praise you and worship you today, Lord, for this truth. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray.